Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yes, yes. Welcome in to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network. I'm your host, Tim McKernan, alongside executive producer John Seymour, a.k.a. The Sea Monster, and videographer Nick Yale. Welcome in for a a conversation that I have a feeling is going to kind of be one of the top, the top favorites of the audience uh, who have listened to so many of our conversations going back to the start of the show in October 2017. Kelly Chase. This this one was um, emotional, uh, hilarious, intense, sincere, passionate. All of the things that make you love Kelly Chase, it's in here for the next 90 minutes. So settle in and enjoy. I'm thrilled to be able to bring this one to you here today on The Tim McKernan Show. And in some news, it is not just The Tim McKernan Show anymore. We are very excited to announce that Verizon Wireless is now the title sponsor of the program. It is the Verizon Wireless Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network. I have been a long, long-term customer of Verizon Wireless, and I know many of you are, but if you're not, you should be. And it is our pleasure to welcome to the program Justin Steer, the Consumer Marketing Director for North Central Region of Verizon Wireless here on the Tim McKernan Show. And Justin, thank you so much for getting on board with the show. As a long-term customer of Verizon Wireless for a decade, this was a natural fit for me, and I'm thrilled that it was a natural fit for you guys as well. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Uh, We're very excited to uh, be the exclusive sponsor of the podcast, and congratulations to you and the team. It's something that caught our attention with just the popularity and uh, the explosion of podcasts, and you guys are are definitely uh, along that train, and we wanted to jump on board, so we're really excited about it. And what you guys are doing at Verizon Wireless is something that we are attempting to do with the podcast, and that is innovating, kind of adjusting with the way that people are consuming media, and Verizon has an exclusive device with Google with a phone called the Pixel. And what this does for people is it brings in Google's home products like the Google Mini uh, and that Google ecosystem that allows people to really uh, experience their media consumption wherever they may be, whether they're at home or in the office or just killing some time. And Verizon Wireless has that exclusive device with Google, and it's called the Pixel. Uh, Tell our listeners what the Pixel is. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think it started, you know, with the innovation, like you talked about, with, you know, Verizon um, launching unlimited data last year. And we knew that people are data explosion uh, was taking place where people were using their phones more than ever. And we wanted to make sure we had devices that would, um, you know, provide that experience experience and that premium content. So with our exclusive partnership with Google, the Pixel, um, it's actually the Pixel 2, so it's on the second generation uh, for a device. And what you get with this is things like unlimited data storage. Um, you get all the innovation of Google. And, you know, the Gmail platform and the Google suite of products has its exclusive device now. And when we partnered with Google, they only wanted to bring it to one carrier. And, and, they, and they selected Verizon, which we were thrilled about. And really, this, this device now is built for things like YouTube TV, um, like the Google Home, like you talked about, um, you know, even things like Chromecast, where people can, you know, broadcast their music, they can broadcast their content, and they can take it with them on the go. So it's, it's really neat to see the technology taken off. And you guys, you know, you're the 14th biggest company in the world, but the thing that I like about Verizon is it's still local. 40 points of distribution in St. Louis, and you guys know that local matters and that's why you guys decided to partner with us here on uh, on the show yeah you know i uh, did my tour of duty at our headquarters in new jersey for a couple of years and i was excited to get back in the field because that's what really happens you know our frontline employees that are interacting with our customers every day uh, know that local matters and it's hard for for large companies to have that homegrown feel and we really know like the station there and, and with your show um, just the loyal followers that you have or something that we wanted to be a part of because st louis matters to us and uh, it's very important we still have a huge presence there like we said with the 40 points of distribution and just really encourage people to check come in and check out things like you know virtual reality you know with with the, with the different goggles that we have now and all the different devices that they can check out. And we're really excited to be part of the show and, and definitely part to be the, the St. Louis landscape. We know we're a part of it. With well, you guys. thank you so much for getting on board. Can't thank you enough. And we're thrilled to have the partnership with Verizon Wireless. It's a natural for me. As I said, I've been a customer for more than a decade. And I know so many of our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear about all of the different innovative products Verizon Wireless has and will continue to put out on the market, which sets Verizon along with the quality of the network apart from anybody else. Online at verizonwireless.com. And as Justin was saying, 40 points of distribution in the St. Louis area. Justin Steer, Consumer Marketing Director for the North Central Region of Verizon Wireless. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, and thank you for the partnership, Justin. We are looking forward to it. Hey, likewise. Thanks, Tim. Justin Steer of Verizon Wireless, the new title sponsor of the Tim McKernan Show. We are thrilled to have Verizon Wireless as our title sponsor here on the show. And uh, also the fact that Kelly Chase is our first guest as the Verizon Wireless Tim McKernan Show uh, is is really fitting because uh, Justin, as a lifelong St. Louisan, a uh, huge, huge fan of the St. Louis Blues growing up and still is, and also Kelly Chase, a guest that we know people are going to be excited to listen to. Now, of course, we're going to talk about uh, what took place with the St. Louis Blues in 2017-2018. But really, this conversation, I don't even know how to, like, outline it for you. And I, in a way, I, I don't really even want to outline it for you because it's all over the place. And I guess now looking back at a lot of these conversations, that's where a lot of them wind up going, and so often that's when they're at their best. But 
they just naturally segue into different areas of his career uh, and or views that lead to uh, five, 10 minute, 15 minute discussions and his candor uh, on so many different things, ranging from this year's team and, and what we discussed regarding the locker room uh, to uh, past blues teams. And specifically the thing that I think I took away from it most as somebody who's covering the team on a regular basis, some of the deals that the team almost made and why they didn't happen and or some of the deals that the team did make and how Chase is just as candid as can be and how bad he thought they were. I mean, it's textbook Kelly Chase. Um, But the interview starts off with him discussing the humble Broncos. And this is a topic with the bus crash and so many lives lost in his home province of Saskatchewan that uh, his hit Chase and everybody in the hockey community incredibly hard, but especially Kelly Chase. He played for the Humboldt Broncos. Uh, As he said in a conversation we had, uh, not in this podcast, but uh, that he has been on the road where the crash took place thousands of times. He has been over that exact spot thousands of times. And so when I walked in to do the interview, Chase was already in the HomeLoanExpert.com studios, and he was just watching music videos that have been created to honor the victims and the families of those directly impacted by that tragedy. And so the first few minutes of our conversation spent on the Humboldt Broncos and the impact it is having on the community and and, and Kelly Chase specifically. So the interview starts off in that capacity and, uh, and then it winds up segueing into juniors youth hockey in St. Louis Chase's early career uh, and how, while he finished his career, of course, as an enforcer, he actually was a hell of an offensive hockey player, which is just difficult for all of us to wrap our minds around, but you don't start off at like six years old uh, skating on a pond in Canada, uh, beating the hell out of everybody. So, you know, that's the way you get to the NHL and um, his his stories. I mean, just few people in St. Louis sports can tell a story better than Kelly Chase. So you're going to just be hearing anecdote after anecdote. Can't wait for you to be able to hear this one. All of this is made possible, of course, by our sponsors. And uh, Ryan Kelly uh, and the HomeLoanExpert.com team have been with us from the very beginning, uh, whether it be with the radio show or with the podcast. And it's an insta-call for me anytime somebody says, hey, I mean, Ryan Kelly, have you done business with him? I said, absolutely. I'm in the process, as a matter of fact, as we speak of doing business with him. And I sent my little sister to him. So that's how much I think of the HomeLoanExpert.com team. And it's so easy right now. It's a different world in the sense that all you got to do is go to the HomeLoanExpert.com, see the page. Are you going to refinance? Are you going to purchase? Okay, click on that. And the next thing you know, within a handful of minutes, you have the numbers to get an idea of either what you're going to save or what kind of payment you would have on the purchase of that new home. It's all there for you with first-class customer service at thehomeloanexpert.com. Ryan Kelly and his team, second to none when it comes to customer service and also the ability to save you money. Right now, five minutes may save you 500 bucks. Why not check out thehomeloanexpert.com and see if they can do it for you as well. The sponsor of our studios here on the Tim McKernan Show thehomeloanexpert.com. So there it all is. The table has been set, and it is now our pleasure 
to bring you Kelly Chase here on the Verizon Wireless Tim McKernan Show. I've been looking forward to having you on the show, and I know I'm having you in under some of the uh, most tragic circumstances as possible, which is which is the worst. And I know you're. This has been something that you've been the face of, really, in in North America on ESPN, and you talked about it on our show, and that is the tragedy with the Humboldt Broncos. Give give our give our audience in St. Louis who might not have an appreciation. They know it's tragedy, but right. what that's like in Saskatchewan, your home province. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really a. I mean, when you when you look back at the little centers and you talk about what hockey means to, you know, in the scheme of things, it's such an important part of of life in Canada to be in a little community where, you know, you lose half of a group that's on a bus and. And the impact that it makes at the school and with the kids, because when you, you know, first of all, when you go to play in a junior team, that's like making it to the NHL. That's the first step you take. So you're looked upon. And how old are you usually for those? 16, you know, 16 to 20 year old kids. But you've been given a huge responsibility because now you represent a community, you represent a city um, and how you carry yourself that you're looked upon as you know, idols by the young kids in that community. Yeah. You're looked upon as 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 representatives of the of the city, and and you know, taking your hat off in public when you're at a restaurant or opening a door for a woman or opening a door to help somebody or, or stopping on the road to pick somebody up that needs a hand. Those are all things you're taught in that in that environment when, when you're a kid. It, the people, the coaches, the community, the the, the teachers that are that are in that are present are all part of your growing up that give you the foundation to become a, a good person. Mm-hmm. And I think hockey players are, are some of the most outgoing people there are. And when you look at it, it's taught in those little towns. We've all rode buses. She's thousands and thousands of miles, whether it be through your junior team or on in through the minors. And, and we found it our safe place. It's always been the place where, you know, supposedly that you would be, the most safe on a bus rather than a car or anything, you know. And f- what it did in this community was it, it just shook the foundation and tore the stomach out of them. Like, you know, it affects the parents, the families deeply. Like, and, you'll, and you'll, they'll never get over that fully. But the community, they're so ingrained in the community, whether it be through the teachers in the school, through the, the billet families that they live with. Imagine reading something where, where a billet family had two or three kids staying with them that were like his own family by the end of the year or two years or the co- course of three years. And they're integrated with your young children and they're like big brothers to them. And the next thing you know, they're gone. I mean, it has a tremendous impact on, a, on a, such an outreach of people. That it's uh, it's been tough. Yeah. What's it like right now back in Saskatchewan? It's morbid. Yeah, you know, it's it's weird. It's you can have a conversation about you know what are we going to do and how do we help? And so many of my buddies I played with, they just got in their tr- the, the car and they drove there and said, "What do we need to do? What do you do?" But I think you know you can be in a rink and you can you can you can honestly feel the sadness being around people, um, you know, it, it's, it's quieted down an entire province, you know, it's, it's, 
I, I think they have to go go on and play. Like they have to play the rest of the season. They have to play. I think you know there has to be a playoff series that has to continue for the good of everybody to heal. I mean, this can't. The the mourning period can stretch on, and the, and the, but at some point it has to stop, and there has to be a healing. And I don't think avoiding the inevitable of which hockey will start again and waiting is is the way to do it. I think the way to honor these kids and honor what the game is supposed to represent means moving on. What you're involved in in trying to put together an event that's Mm -hmm. going to honor these families uh, and these kids. Give us an idea of what that process is like right now. Well, there's so many people that want to help, and yet there's so many things that, you know, people are, you have different ideas and, you know, you want to do something that's of magnitude that, that really, you know, so, you know, whether you're talking to, you know, we've got a great handle on a lot of the country music artists. They're both Canadian and U.S. born that want to contribute, trying to allocate that and allocate the players in the league so you can represent each team properly yeah. in a short period of time becomes a pretty big undertaking. Uh, you know, originally started uh, working on something the morning after it happened because, Landed in Colorado and already sent a message to my team up in Canada that has a marketing company up there. And I said, you know, let's figure this out. In the meantime, I got up in the morning in Colorado. Colby Armstrong had reached out to me and Haley Wickenheiser and said, what are we doing here? You know, we got to do something. What are we doing? So we had a conference call at one in the afternoon. The day after we started to throw some ideas together, I called Troy Volhofer from Global Entertainment. Um, in Nashville, who I play junior hockey with, he's, you know, got lighting and stages and does all of the concerts from all over the world, you know, and he's, you know, handled Metallica stuff from day one and started with the Backstreet Boys. So he's got quite a history with these entertainers and said, listen, what can you do to try and help out? You know, where's the right venue? Um, and so we're trying to work on the details and doing something in Saskatoon, which is an hour, 45 minutes away from Humboldt mm-hmm. and trying to piece something together and, and and be able to help these families. I think the biggest thing that you have when you have a GoFundMe page is you have a GoFundMe page that gets over a certain amount of money and comes a lot of lawyers involved. And yeah. as we've seen in Vegas, where none of the money has been distributed just yet after eight months, we want to be able to say to the families here, here we're going to give you instant financial relief and also give you an opportunity to talk to us and let you know that through the healing process, the hardest part is after the funeral and after when people walk away. Well, here, we're not going to forget. Here, Here's our phone numbers. You need us, we're going to come and we're there. What can we do? Um, and I think, you know, I mean, that's that's the only thing you can do. Like, It's it's a hell of a time back home. I got to be honest with you, Tim. There's been days where I've just pulled over to the side of the road and cried. It's It's been tough. Yeah. I think, and this is intended to be a compliment, not a shot at other sports, but I think this is one of the things that makes hockey unique. And, and, I, and I don't know why it is, but perhaps you can speak to why it is. And I'm not taking a shot at basketball, baseball, football, golf, no, whatever. It's, but it's, it's the way it is with the game of hockey, the family that is the game of hockey. Yeah, you know, it really is a close-knit group. And, and I think the other thing is, too, is that we all grew up in those little places that, you know, we, all, we get it. Like, if you've, if you've played the game, you've been on a bus. You understand community. You understand what it is to give back. You can't get to this level or in junior hockey and not understand what 
team concept is, what loyalty is, what, you know, compassion is, because hockey has a way of weeding out the assholes. <laughs> it's just the way it is, man. I feel like that needs to be a poster in a locker room somewhere. <laughs> no, but it's true. Like, you know, like we... We don't let assholes stay in the game. I was talking to somebody just yesterday. You probably know him, but I don't want to name his name just out of respect for him. I'm certain you know him, actually. Um, car dealer, as a matter of fact. And I said, it's something about I cover the blues with TV. And I said, I don't recall one. I have to, like, think. I'm sure there was one. Like, Pronger liked to give a shit, which was fun. Right. You know, because he knew we didn't know what the hell we were talking about. And then it was his kind of way of, you know, jabbing. Right. But there wasn't, like, a guy in the five years I was down there who was just, like, a dick. And I don't know, and I, you know, I think about that, whereas, like, I think about the Cardinals, or I think about the Rams, or covering Missouri, and it's like, oh, yeah, he was brutal to deal with. And I go, God, who was the dick on the Blues? I can't think about it. Yeah. And I don't know how that's the case, because I'm sure some guys were assholes, yeah. but, but they were able to conduct themselves. And I think that starts from, like, you're trained, like, at a young age to not do that shit. I think that's what's going on. We weed them out in a hurry. Yeah. How do you, you know, weed them out? You, Code you, red? You honestly have to be it. Like, you have to be... Your skill level and contributions have to be way above um, everyone else's to be able to put up with shit from yeah, guys that yeah, are like that. Like yeah. we just don't do it. Yeah, you know. And 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 it's and it doesn't matter if you're a, a tough guy, a hard nosed player, a, a goalie, a finesse player. Someone will grab you and say, "We don't act like this. Smarten up." And so and it happens at a young age. It happens at a young. Hey, listen. If you th- the the first thing that happens in a code of conduct stuff as a young player, if somebody reached out to me about a kid from St. Louis, they're going to ask me everything about the kid. Does he play hard? Does he care about his teammates? Does he does he work hard in the corners? Can he score? What do you think his skating's at? Could it be better? And the last question they ask me is, what do you know about his family and what kind of kid is he? Mm. They ask about his dad. If your dad's an asshole up in the stands. They would rather take the family that's dad's not like that. So if parents think that they don't have an impact on their kid, the only one that can get their kid to the next level is the kid. But there is a factor of parents that can get them from not getting there. Because if your kid is on par with another kid and you act like a jackass in the rink all the time, they won't take you. And they'll know. And listen, I can tell you firsthand as as a parent who's been involved in the game, when college scouts ask me that, I answer 100% honest because they will never call you about another kid. And when you need a favor to get a kid in there who's a great kid, they're not going to take your word for it if you BS them about yeah, the if guy. you burned them on the other guy. Right. Right. And so I'm going to tell you right now, for, for the parents that think that, that going in a rink and acting like a clown or being a pain in the ass to the coach doesn't wear thin on the direction of their kid, I can tell you firsthand, I'm the first guy that'll tell a scout, Dad's a jackass. <laughs> I'm that guy. I'm that guy. But you know what? For my own integrity, I'm going to. Because if my dad would have stuck his nose in the middle of my stuff all the time, I wasn't good enough to make that team. And I wouldn't have made the Humboldt Broncos. You know, my dad wasn't around. My mom didn't really, she didn't say anything. I had to go and learn the hard knocks by, by my own side of it. But I, even as a kid, my dad didn't go in the ring com- complaining to referees and yelling and screaming at coaches or questioning whether or not the coach knew what he was doing or or making a big issue about stuff about a player banging on the glass. My dad didn't do that. And the reason he didn't do that is because he wanted me to love the game and play because I love the game. He didn't want me to, he, and, he, and he, he certainly didn't want me to see his father acting like a jackass at yeah. the rink. 
does that go on now more, do you think, than it did then? I think parents are completely out of line in lots of cases. You know, I think that there's a, a somehow, I think that because the kids have become one-trick ponies, where they all play one sport and it's year-round, mm. whether it's anything, no, basketball, no. baseball, right. I think they have so much time and money invested in it that they become delusional to what where their kids really at and what it's about. Now, I'm going to put it in perspective for you. There's 7,500 guys in 100 years that have played one game in the NHL. Okay? 700, 7,500 in 100 years. So, like, you know, I know Johnny wants to play in the NHL, but so does Billy and Bobby and, and 700 Billies and Bobbies in the next town and everything else. So, like... Put it in perspective for your kid. My my oldest son's not playing hockey. I believe he would have been one of the top six forwards on the team and the AAA team this season if he'd have played. He he's in Montreal in college, and he came home after scoring a bunch of goals in a in a in a uh, um, tryout game. Scored four goals. Came home. I said to my wife, "I'm going to have a talk with Will." She said, "Why?" I said, "He doesn't want to play hockey. I can tell he doesn't want to play hockey." She's like, "Well, what do you mean?" And, and I, so he got home, and I said, son, come here, I want to talk to you. I go, what is it you want to do? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, why are you playing hockey? He goes, well, what else would I do? I said, I don't know. What do you want to do? He said, well, I don't know why, the, why you're asking me the question, Dad. I said, well, you don't want to play hockey. So what is Because, Dad, I scored four goals today. I said, I know you did, bud. But I don't want you to play hockey because I played hockey. I want you to play because you love the game, that you want to play hockey. Because I could care less if you play hockey. I get what's going on here. And I get how hard it is to get to where I'm at. And if you think I care whether you play in the NHL or college or any of that, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I do not, not one bit. You got to love the game to play. And you got to love the game in order to get to where I was at. And you don't love the game. You like the game. You like to play because your friends play. And two days later, he come upstairs and said, Dad, what you asked me about the other day, he goes, you know, I go, what I want to do, I really want to be in film and I want to be in business and film. Behind, you know, and I said, now that's a great answer. I said, you know how many 17-year-olds actually know what they want to do? Yeah. Not many. Yeah. They go to college, they piss away their parents' money, <laughs> then they don't, you know, they, take, they get an education degree and never teach a day in their life, right? <laughs> they pissed away $200,000 and, you know, so I said, here's a 17-year-old that knows what he wants to do. And he's already talked about the colleges and so on and so forth. I'm happy with that. I'm proud of him. I'm, I'm like, hey. He's got his brother that's next in line. All he thinks about is wanting to play junior hockey. He's played. He went up to Minnesota two weekends ago and been with the team already. Wants to move away from home. And I see it in him. I see him doing plyometrics at night and lifting weights and shooting pucks. It's different because I get that part of it because that's how I was. But I don't go scream and holler and try and force feed it down him or the parents or the coaches or anybody yeah because honestly you get like that you're delusional one of the things you told me about the young kids playing hockey in st louis and i thought this really drove home why we've seen success around here is the alumni Mm -hmm. and the presence of the alumni in the community Mm -hmm. and guys coaching and so you don't have as many parents coming down to the bench and bitching at the coach because the coach actually spent time at a high level playing in the right. NHL. Well, you know, you have a lot of people in St. Louis that think they're one breakaway from playing pro baseball and pro- playing pro soccer. 
You know, and if I could, if I had a quarter for every time in Canada, somebody told me the knee injury ruined their career. No, you were no good and you didn't make it. The knee injury had nothing to do with it. Please stop. I was just about to tell you about my knee injury right, with baseball. Right. So like, you know, it, that's not how it works. Like, you know, there's too many factors to tell me that at that big tournament when you were 14, you hurt your knee. Like, come on. So there's, but, but, but I will tell you, I think there's a huge, I think there needs to be more growth in St. Louis in hockey. I think the St. Louis community made a huge mistake splitting the AAA teams up um, because they had the best players in the country playing against the best players in the country. And there's no race. Like everyone's like, well, we got to have AAA teams at 13. No, you don't. You just take the best kids and you put them together and they play at the highest level and some of them fall back and some of them will move forward. And then you go to these tournaments with the best players to represent the best kids because very few of them are going to move forward. And then as this, as the hockey community grows, certainly you can get to that point. We're not there yet. But for whatever reason, with parents are becoming more and more anxious for their kid to hurry up and get someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not a hurry. It's not a race. Like you'll eventually, it eventually weeds itself out. We've combined almost three AAA teams now. So if you think about it, all of the St. Louis teams were in the top six in the country. And now there's some that are in the teens and some that are in the 20s and 30s in the rankings because they've diluted the talent. And it makes no sense to me. I think there needs to be one team in the city that, I mean, that's how we became successful. And people give the alumni a lot of credit. Well, all the alumni did was push them to higher degrees of talent levels. Like they, they made them go and get their ass kicked in Michigan for a long time before Michigan started respecting them. But they just took the best kids from the city and did that. And people say, well, now there's enough really good kids and here's why. Well, you know, it, you know, you try and explain it to parents or to even organizations. They just, you know, if you had, if your team, if your kids were in the top five in the country as 15-year-olds, I bet you you have 10, 11 of them get college scholarships. But because they're only seen a number of times because they're in the 30s or the 20s in rankings, now you maybe have two or three. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it dilutes the people that want to come and watch you too. But how do you explain that to guys that just played junior hockey that grew up in St. Louis and we got them to junior hockey? And then how do you explain those guys that maybe moved on and played a little bit of college? Or How do you explain the concept, especially to guys that don't have kids, that want to be involved because they want to coach, want to be involved because cause they think, I know, I know best, I went through it to junior hockey or to college hockey. Sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, let the people that have gone through it with both the kids and themselves personally mm-hmm. explain it to you still. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I'll tell you the other thing. Parents are in such a rush to get uh, an advisor. Now, what's an adv- what is this? Well, they can't this have is an, different than an agent. Right. You can't have an agent. So right. they call themselves advisors. Okay. Mm. So they get these advisors. You have 40-some alumni around town. But apparently they don't know anything. No, so you're going to get they a, only play. They, the why would they advise you? Like, like the guys like, well, you know, he's only going to do what's best for the kids he likes. I would never, I would never not want to do what was best for any kid in St. Louis. If a parent come up to me and ask what I thought, they might not like what they hear, but I would never discourage them from their dream. But I would tell them honestly to be realistic, to set the goal here and then work through it and, and set the goal here. So, and, and you might, you, I, I say this to my good friends and they go out and get advisors anyway. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. I see you once a week. We have dinner together twice a month. You go out and hire an, adv- hire an advisor, which is 
absolutely asinine in the first place. So I, I'm like, I can't believe you do it. Like, I would have given you advice. He's giving you the wrong advice. But go ahead and spend your money and learn, okay? <laughs> and my wife t- told me last year, she said she wanted me to speak to this man. He's a really nice guy. And I said, I know he's a nice guy. She goes, I want, he wants to talk. I go, no, he doesn't. He wants me to tell him what he wants to hear. He doesn't want to talk. Finally, she convinced this guy, convinced me that I should talk to this guy. Well, the guy calls me, and I'm like, I got, you know, damn it. She's got through to him. And he calls me, and I gave him the advice that he didn't want to hear. And he did everything I said not to do. Mm. His son went away and played this winter. He scored four points all year long instead of playing on a team and getting 100 points. He wanted to move up to that level. And maybe things will work out for him. I mean, I, I hope they do. Great, great guy. Nice kid. But he wasted a year sitting on the bench and being an extra that he could have been just developing his game and just being the top guy in the league and, and dominating. Mm-hmm. So now these scouts call me that I went to bat for the kid the prior year and are saying, what happened to your guy? And I'm like, I don't know. He did. I called him at Christmas time and said, I don't know, man. I uh, here's what I think. Yeah, he said, yeah, I'll call you back. And he never called me back. And he, had to, he says to me, well, he's living with a really good family there. I'm like, well, did he go there to eat or did he go there to become a good hockey player? Because, you know, because they're feeding him well. I, you know, like, what, what, what the hell are you talking about, right? And, and, to, put, and to pound the, the, the point home, I had a, uh, a guy send me an email. And he said, I really like the way you play. I really think you got a great future. Now, he got my name off of a list and probably got my name confused with some other name and sent me this big... He's reaching out to you. Reaching out to me. He wants me to hire him as an advisor. Oh, my God. Well, maybe so, he liked the way you've been performing well, down at those skates. With well, them. hold on a second. I wasn't, this isn't over. <laughs> so I blind copy 25 parents on my response. I forward them this and says, this is what happens. And then I blind copy them on the response and said, oh, I'm thrilled. I, you give me this opportunity. I said, you know, uh, where did you see me play? Was it at the Winter Classic? Was it the, you know? And the guy responds to me. And he says, I really think you're not. I said, give me some things that I should work on. And he says, you know, I really don't think you're selfish enough. You pass the puck too much. You should shoot more. You've got a hell of a shot. You've done this. You've done this. So I respond back to him. And I said, oh, that's great. I said, did you see me play in a certain tournament? He goes, yeah, we were there for a short time. He goes, you know, uh, you know, I, I really think that there's more we can get out of you. And I could start talking to some of these colleges about you because you've got good size. And he's going on and on and on. And he says, so here's how I'm in a family business. We've been around for a long time. Here's how the advisory business works. We can start to promote you to some of these colleges and some of these junior teams immediately, we charge $5,000. We start off, we only ask for 2500 of it to start with. And then at the end of the season, you know, we'll have called and got some junior teams interested in you, some college teams. And once they talk to you, once we've had four or five of them talk to you, we'll ask for the remainder of the money. So the guy only wanted $5,000 to promote a 50-year-old that had already played 13 years in the NHL. That was pretty... I thought, that's a hell of a deal. This kid's going to get me to go through junior again. So I sent this guy back this great email and said, that's awesome. I said, you know, here we go. I said, I'll tell you what. Why don't you Google me on HockeyDB 
and get back to me and think if you still think <laughs> that it's worth the 5000 let me know. <laughs> he wrote this big, long email back and said, oh, I, I, you know, our hockey database got you mixed up with someone that we had watched and so on and so forth. I said, for four emails back and forth, you, you confused me with somebody. I go, come on, kid, go get, go, go find yourself another job. <laughs> and I made sure I contacted every single parent on there. And you know what? About three of them responded to me thinking it was hilarious. Uh-huh. And the other guys were quietly sitting there going, shit, I wasted five <laughs> yeah, grand. Yeah, I wasted five grand. I w- but it was, right. it was awesome. It couldn't have been better. <laughs> Dumbass advisors. <laughs> Terrible. So I, I, I've never asked you this before, and I'm legitimately curious. Like, you had to have incredible game c- coming up. I mean, you had to have. You're, kind of, you're downplaying. If, you, if you're playing in the NHL, you had to have. And it was, and you, and you probably weren't making your uh, your bones at six years old, beating the hell out of kids in Saskatchewan. So your game had to be a different. Yeah, you, game. Know, you know, it's funny. I we were we'd moved a house, and I had this box of trophies, and every every day we were moving stuff in, and we got to the box, this box of trophies, and I mean, my mother had sent everything, uh-huh. like it was a size of a, I don't know, like a, a washer uh-huh. washing uh-huh. machine. Uh-huh. You could get in this thing right in this box, and these medals and these first place. So I, I got all the boys downstairs. I said, I'm going to need some, I'm going to need you guys to help me unpack and decide which now my wife wants to just throw the entire box in the garbage. And I ended up throwing away most of it, which now, to, now it pisses me off that I didn't keep it. But, <laughs> but anyways, I was down there and I said, well, okay, you guys, I need, I need some help. So they're all sitting on the couch. And I said, uh, I said, should I throw this trophy away right here? It says most valuable player, you know, 1976 uh-huh. most of MVP should I that's the league trophy I said you, you think I should throw that away and I'd say and then it said top scorer top scorer in the league top, should I throw this one away and they're all looking at me I go you guys think you're good and I'm like oh, and, and and my little guy's going oh seriously what league were you playing was it like a one I said I don't know he goes dad you scored like 17 goals in the NHL. I said, which league? <laughs> Tell me again. Say that last word again. And he go, NHL. I said, well, dig through the box and see how, figure out how I got to the NHL. You know, and these, because these people, they go, ah, you know, he was a, he was a fighter. Right. Well, I had 234 points or something one year as a, as a 12-year-old. Oh, my God. Honestly, like, I, there, me and this guy, Todd Thorpe, who should be sitting beside me, my best friend growing up, he ended up going back home with some of us, too, just to work. We ripped up a league that was unreal. Like, the funny thing is, is that there was a bunch of us. It's a really odd thing if you're in that part of the country because within about 40 miles, you can drive into all of these little towns and there's billboards up of all of us guys that played, right? So when you're driving to Kelvington, it says, Welcome to Canada's Hockey Factory. And there's like, you know, nine billboards of guys that played in the towns of 1,000 people. And you drive down the road and there's three more guys and you drive, you know, 10 miles away. And the same thing in Quill Lake and Foam Lake and Porcupine Plain. And people are like, what the hell happened out there? Like within 40 miles, you got all these guys. Yeah. Well, we would combine as a team in the provincials and we would go into the city and we'd have green helmets and red helmets and blue helmets and black helmets and socks didn't match. And the people were like, what, like, what the hell? We, we epitomized the Bad News Bears and we beat the living shit out of these city teams. We'd leave there and they'd be like, where? Like, it was like, like something fell out of the sky. The first time it happened, it was hilarious. They were, the teams were looking around at, 
we can't get the puck from them. We can't run them. They're tougher than yeah. us. We can't. We don't even know how to play against them. Where the <laughs> hell did they come from, right? And then you know the Wendell Clarks and the guys that played in the NHL a long time, the old line brothers, and and you know uh, Kevin Kaminsky and and Corey Koser and Joe Koser and mm-hmm. myself and Trent Yanni and. We would la- we we'd go home and play softball together, fast pitch softball together in the summertime, and and it it was literally hilarious the people that would come out to watch because they were like, I don't get how they can all be from the same place. <laughs> what was in the water, right? You know, so imagine like having a town full of sutters in every place every seven miles, and that's what it was like. It was just really so. So of course we were, you know, players, and but I mean, in my case, you know, I had we all grew up playing tough. I had to add that element to my game as I got along because I had to. I knew I wanted to get somewhere. And at I what age I, did you add that element? When probably you seven. When I was in Humboldt. Okay. Yeah, when I was in Humboldt, when I played my first year as a sixteen-year-old, you know, I think I had two hundred and some penalty minutes as a sixteen-year-old. Again, you know, you're fighting twenty-year-old guys, and you're That's and they, a, they, a lot of them man. have beards on their faces <laughs> and that, and you're like, oh boy, and you, you know, you don't sleep real well in the <laughs> afternoon. But I think that the thing was is that I always had this thing that I want to stick up for my teammates. And then I had a pride amongst myself that I didn't want to get taken advantage of. So when you're 16, you're going to take some lumps. And it's like anything, like, you know, the bully in the parking lot. If you, if you don't once in a while turn around and punch him back in the nose real freaking hard, mm. then he's going to keep doing it to you. Yeah. And there was times where I turned around and just said, I had enough of you. And I'd, you know, walk a guy with my stick and just drop my gloves and just beat the hell out of some guy. And I'd, I'd be getting threatened from their bench about what I was doing, and I'd be yeah, well, come back and try it, and you're going to get it too. And then by the time the year was ending, I had created some space for myself, plus the scouts were coming going, this kid's a 16-year-old that just turned 17. He obviously wants to play at the next level because you didn't just go do that at that level and not have aspirations of moving mm-hmm. on to major junior. So, of course, I went to Moose Jaw. I got cut. Uh, I rode a bus. I borrowed seven bucks from Tim Chevelday. Got him on the bus with me. We took the bus to Saskatoon from Moose Jaw. They cut both of us, and we both went to Saskatoon the same day. We lived in uh, the Capri Hotel, which is probably the worst area you can. In, for Saskatoon, it would be like grabbing something in, you know, Collinsville. <laughs> or, I mean, or in uh, you know, East St. Louis where you just look around and go, People sleeping all over your stuff, and they, they put us there. That, that was an intriguing. Uh, we had no money, zero money, and a continental breakfast. So you, you went downstairs for breakfast. You wore your winter coat so you could jam the cereal boxes and deviled <laughs> eggs and everything that they put down there in your pockets and take them up to the room so you had something to eat all day. It took three days. We didn't ask for meal money. Uh, we played a game. We had a pregame meal. We, had, uh, we played a game at home against Brandon. I scored. His half of the game, he didn't let in a, a goal. We were going to Prince Albert for the next night. And Wendell was still with us. He hadn't got, he hadn't gone to camp in Toronto yet with the Leafs. Drafted first overall. He called sure. me and said, "Hey, listen, there's this guy Ken Baumgartner. He's really tough." And he goes, "He's you know he's going to be playing in the game probably. And if he's playing in the game, and he starts running around and you want to make an impact, he's tough. But go after him." He goes because he said, "I'll tell you what. You go after him, and they're going to they're going to put you on the team." So I said, oh, I mean, Wendell Clark, he's my best friend. Yeah. You know, he's my best buddy in Saskatoon. And I said, okay. And that day, he they gave me his number. And we went into Saskatoon, and, or into Prince Albert. And I went after Ken Baumgartner in a game, and I did pretty well in the fight. And after the game, 
the coach was standing by the bus and he said, come here for a second, standing by the door, come here for a second. I come over and he goes, Hey, we're going to put you in with a family tomorrow. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, you're going to stay here with us. We're going to give you a family to live with. And I'm thinking, thank God I'm going to eat. I'm like, Oh my God. (laughs) And I, I, uh, he, I, he goes, uh, I know, you know, Todd McClellan, who's the coach now in Edmonton, you're going to live with his family, him his mom and dad and, and his brother and sister and him. So he had twin brother and sister uh, that were a year younger than us, and I moved into their house and I lived with them for the year. And how old were you? I ate point? like I was going to electric chair the first day. I was like, <laughs> unbelievable, man. I was seventeen. Seventeen at that point. So, what do you, do you ever think about it? Was that like a defining moment? If Ken Baumgartner wouldn't have been coming to town and Wendell wouldn't have given you the call, uh, would, a, would the world have been different? We know what's really weird is is that. I probably would have went back to Humboldt. They were hosting the Centennial Cup, which is the Canadian Championships. They were the host team that that next year. But I, but I fought in the game. In in the in the black and white game in Moose Jaw, and had and had four points, had three goals and an assist, and got cut. So I was like, "That's impossible! <laughs> what the hell's going on? The gigs? Like, what's the deal?" And Wendell's older brother was my assistant coach in Humboldt. And I phoned the farm, and they were all harvesting, and then out on the combines and whatever. And I called them, and I said, "Hey, what the hell's going on here?" He, you know, and and his dad walked through the house, and his dad was matter of fact guy. Like he, he was no nonsense. We were all terrified of him. He was, he just said stuff, and you did it. I could have a job in town, and you say, "I need you to work here tomorrow, Chase," and I'd have to phone my job and say, "I can't come in tomorrow." And they go, "You're sick." I go, "No, Mr. Clark said I got to work here," and they all got it. You know, we were all afraid of him. And he said, "What does he want?" Because there was work to do. And Don, get out in the tractor. And he goes, "What? What's the matter?" And I told him, I said, "You know, I just scored four points in a game and had a fight, beat the hell out of this guy, and and I'm getting cut." And he goes, "I go, something's up." So he turned around on the phone and he said something to Donnie that took about two minutes. And sure enough, my coach that was in Humboldt wanted Moose Jaw to put me on their list and cut me so that they could have a better team and a better chance to win the Canadian Championships. Oh, no way. And the man was standing there said, listen up, you get on the bus and you go to Saskatoon, there will be a place for there, there to play. And I said, really? And he goes, and I said, well, Mr. Clark, there's a goalie that's here that was really good, and he got cut too. He goes, tell the goalie to get on the bus too. Didn't know his name. So he tells Daryl Lubinicki in Saskatoon, hey, Chase is coming, get him a spot, find a spot for him. And he says, and he's bringing a goalie, and they don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> Tim Chevalier played. Turns out to be pretty damn good goalie. Tim Chevalier yeah. ends up playing in the National right, Hockey League for right, 12 years. Right, right. Okay? So they cut us in alphabetical order, CHA, Chase, CHE, Chevalier, two guys. We were rooming together. We jumped on the bus. I needed to borrow seven bucks for the bus. I didn't have money. Chevy paid for me to get to Saskatoon. We tried out for the team. Uh, he was fantastic. He ended up staying um, of obviously being the regular there of the goalie yeah. for three years drafted by Detroit, playing in the NHL, and my career worked out. So there were so many things that could have yeah. changed. Yes. You know, it just, it's, you know, I, I often believe this, so t- I believe this in life. I think when you're, when preparation meets the opportunity, you're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think I had done everything I needed to do to, to prepare to be successful. Like I, I trained when, you know, guys weren't training because they, I, I just was, I was emulating what Joe Koster and Barry Melrose and those guys from our hometown were in the NHL. I was doing what they were doing when I was young because I watched them do it. 
Now, albeit they didn't train like they did, but they trained, and lots mm-hmm. of guys didn't train at all. Really? So I, you know, because that was the era. You know, when you're 14 and you're running and you're going on a, you know, a, I don't know, seven, 10 mile bike ride, because you see that's what Joe Coaster's doing. Mm-hmm. He's on a mountain bike going 20 miles. Mm-hmm. So you go one way, he comes coming into town with him, you go into town with him. Yeah. You stay in town. He goes back yeah. like 20 miles, right? <laughs> the point was is that I had to learn how to do that, and I was just watching what was going on. I was lucky to have those older guys around. They were mentors. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, then, and then we did what they did, and then we, we saw how they played, and we emulated what they did. You know, if, if Joey was hitting a heavy bag, I was hitting a heavy bag. You know, if, if Barry Melrose was running, I was running. If, if Wendell Clark was, you know, he set up a whole gym behind their cottage. I, we live next door to them at the lake. I got in. I'm like, hey, I'm in. What do I need to do? You know? And that's how we became successful. That's what we did that was we, we, we emulated one another. We, we, we watched what one another did, and we just tried to pull each other along. And it was great. Were you guys doing that because you wanted to play in the NHL? Oh, or were you yeah. doing it because you loved this? So it was always Jesus. the goal. To get- Barry Melrose come home with a brand new half done one time. <laughs> and we're like, and and by the way, he was dating this girl he married was was uh, one of the Cincinnati Stinger cheerleaders. And, you know, in the WHA. And I'm like, okay, so let me get this straight. You run, you bike, you lift weights, you get to play in the NHL. And you get a new truck. <laughs> oh, and by the way, the redhead that just got out of the truck, smoking. <laughs> Okay, that's how it works. What do I got to do? Put in a couple more miles at night, boys. Let's go. Let's go and get them. Oh, yeah. So what's that moment like when you find out you're actually getting the call to go? Well, I signed a contract with the Blues thinking I was going to be in the American League because I wasn't drafted. You know, they didn't didn't draft me two years in a row. I didn't get drafted. What's had, that like? Well, was that, that was that, tough. Was that brutal? It was tough because I played against guys that were getting drafted. Right, and you I, know these guys, and they're going. And some of them are soft. Like, some of them are like, I'm like, there's no way that guy's playing in. Like, I I could tell, you know, I, I say this to everybody. You're the most qualified to put a team together as a GM the day you leave the game. And if you want to piss off a GM, just say that to them. <laughs> because they think they're better and smarter and know more about it. But if you take the emotion out of it, yeah. if you take the emotion out of the player, that I don't like you when I play against you. Mm-hmm. If you take the emotion out of it and just say, I want to know whether you want the guy on your team or not. Mm-hmm. I probably want you on my team. If I don't like you, it means you're hard to play against. Yeah. Now, the guy that lines up beside me in, in a face-off, and he's, he's cutting a deal with you. Hey, how was the summer? Hey, you and Holly get out golfing? You're like, okay, nice guy to go to a barbecue with. Don't want him on my team. Okay. <laughs> You know, run along. So I, I could tell you the day I retired who the hell was hard to play against and what we needed on our team. Larry Plo didn't want to listen to what I had to say, but I, but I offered it up because I could tell you that, that I did. We signed uh, Sean Hill. I love Sean yeah, Hill. He's really. a friend, right? Terrible signing. <laughs> Terrible signing. Think about this for a second. We signed Dallas Drake with him. Unreal signing. Great guy to have on your team. Terrible to play against. But you got Sean Hill to be a power play guy because he scored 22 goals. What were we going to do with McKinnis and Pronger? <laughs> hey, Al, have a seat. We got Sean Hill here. <laughs> what the hell did we sign Sean Hill for? Pissed off Sean Hill. We had to get end up moving him, and all it did was take up a bunch of money where we could have. What we should have been doing, there was a guy, Mike Rasky or Kyle McLaren, that were just miserable to play against. Great big bastards that were strong. <laughs> 
that ate up minutes that needed to play with Al McInnes and, and, and Chris Pronger so they could be beasts out there so that nobody could go around you and they would block shots and, and take on tough guys and protect these guys. That's what we needed. We didn't need 22 goals to sit on the bench right. and not play on the power play. And when he did get out there, it was because Pronger had just killed off a penalty and played the power play, and he just <laughs> played four straight minutes. So Prong said, here, here's 20 seconds left on the power play. Go get him, Tiger. The stupidest signing we did all, all along. It didn't make sense. But I knew that as a player. I knew Sean was that guy. Uh-huh. Great at a barbecue. <laughs> Man, Great at a barbecue. Terrible. <laughs> But, again, it's the same thing, you know, like, you know when you know. Like, as a player, you know that guy is a miserable son of a bitch. And that Dallas Drake was that guy. Yeah, That was a great signing, Yeah, you know, because that's what we needed. We needed some guys to go through the wall. And, you know, we got to the the conference. I'll tell you another deal. We had had Dominic Hasek, and all he wanted to know is, were they going to try and get better? And Larry said, we don't discuss it. I'm not banging on Larry. Boy, there's lots of GMs that do this. I'm giving you an example. Uh-huh. He said, we don't discuss other players with the players. Why not? <laughs> what? You know what Kenny Holland did? Said, we're trying to get Brett Holland and Luke Robitaille. Okay, I'll sign up for you. <laughs> that seemed to work Like, out. wouldn't you tell him, I'm getting Dougie Waite. I'm signing uh, Doug Waite. I'm uh, trying to get better. Uh, really? You're signing Doug Waite? Okay. I'm in. I'm in. And guess why we didn't win in the playoffs when Colorado? Because we had a week off, and Romy got into the beer, and we all of a sudden we we couldn't play in the playoffs. Our goaltending wasn't good enough, right? Yeah, that's the Brent truth. Johnson starts Game Five. I mean, we should have won that series. That was our. We should have won the, the cup that year. Yep, yep, that was it. And we knew it was goaltending, but we didn't want to go get the best goaltender. We want to get the second best guy because we didn't want to tell him who we were going to sign. <laughs> I don't like hearing these stories. I didn't know this. This makes me, it's probably going to drive some Blues fans up the yeah, well, wall. Well, you think it didn't piss me off? I was part of it, man. You know, like, I'm serious. Like, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Does, does that get around the room? Is everybody aware oh, of it? absolutely. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I mean, we knew. We knew that he wanted to come to St. Louis. We knew he was that close to coming, and we didn't do everything we could to tip him over the edge. Oh, God. So yep. was that 2001, the 2001 offseason? Yeah. 2000, 2001 offseason? Yep. So you're fresh off the San yep. Jose series. Yeah. With the uh, there were some net mining issues in that series, yeah, and they don't. Here's another thing: like when you go to a GM and tell them that you can get a player for a certain price, and they kind of look at you like, "I'll worry about doing my job; you do yours." Scott Mellenby would have taken seven hundred and fifty a year for two years for an extension after he got to St. Louis for a month. We waited till we had to pay him four point five for three, a year, now, or four or whatever it was in that neighborhood. My point is this. He was worth every dime. But when you have a guy that you know the league still wants and he becomes an intangible and a part of your locker room and a part of the fabric of what you're trying to build, it's okay to sign him early. Yeah. It's okay to give him it's okay to give him less money when they when they ask for it. It's okay to do that or or don't even ask for it and go to him and say, I'm gonna extend you for a year. Yeah. What a concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because cause you can still get rid of them at, at 750. Sure. The whole league wants them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? <sighs> These are frustrating stories. And again, I know you were living it. I'm hearing about it here 14, 15 years later. God bless America. Those teams, you, you guys always talk about one team and then the famous trade with Vancouver as being like the oh my God yeah. moment. Does that 
here you are, what, 27 years, I guess, removed from that, if my math is correct, 25, 26, 27 years removed from that. Is that one where you look back as a player and you go, that was it? And what the, did, in the moment did you go, what the hell are we yeah. doing? In the moment you thought that, or is it an after-the-fact thing? No, I think we all thought it right Really? I think, I think in the worst part, of, the hardest part about it is, is, you know, you got probably the best captain I've ever seen or been, been around as far as taking care of people is Garth Butcher. So that really becomes a struggle with you. And the worst part about it is, from our understanding now, is, is that they had offered... Ronning, um, Dirk, and a choice between Momesso and and Cortnell. And Quinn said, watch this. And he called back at the last minute and said, I want both of them and I'll do the deal. And Mr. Cron hung up and got back to him and gave him both of them. And he would have taken, he goes, we'll take the deal, but let's just try this. And, you know, they were going to take Momesso and would have left us 40 goals with Cortnell. Mm. One or the other. We needed one of them. And um, unfortunately, you know. And then, of course, it went from bad to worse because then you lost Scotty the next year. You right. know, but you signed Brendan. You try and we tried to replace them. Mr. Shannon was unbelievable. And, you know, then we lost Scotty. But, you know, you think about that team. I mean, if you'd have got Brendan and, you know, and the package that they had originally was for Paul Cavallini and for uh, uh, Vinny Rando and, and the picks. You would have had Shanahan and Stevens. You would have had Hall and Oates. You would have had... Oh, my God. You know, you would have had that. You would have had Butchie still on the back end because you've already traded, you know, Momesso and Cortnell. So even if you would have kept one of them, they were like... I mean, you know, the what ifs, you know, it's the old sure, story. No, of some butts or candies right, every right, Christmas right. every day. But, he, but you, you, you know, that was a team where you looked at and went, wow, that was a real, that was a legitimate. I thought the Blues were going to win the cup the year they beat Chicago out here a few years ago. I thought that they, I thought that the Blues uh, were going to, I really believe we were going to win the cup. I believe so we were going to win the cup. the team the year they lost to the Sharks you're yep. talking about. Yep. Yeah. I, I believe they were going to win the cup when, uh, when we lost in five to Colorado, especially when Sackick and Forsberg had their injury. Joe Sackick played with one arm and he beat us. And Forsberg had Forsberg what, like, had a punctured lung or a, something like appendicitis. Appendicitis, like yes. Yeah. Something happened yeah, to him. Right before missed the it. series, yeah. and coming off a sweep of the defending. Well, 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 we were all looking around, going, "This is a, this is this is fake news." <laughs> oh, you, didn't really, you thought it was BS? How, what, you you got a call in the morning. You're going to start the series, and you're going to hear both Sackick and Forsberg are out. <laughs> what? No way. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's I like here Crosby, the rink and, Crosby and Malkin oh aren't going to play tonight. Yeah. What? <laughs> and then Joe plays. He freezes himself up, and and, yeah. he, and he just put that whole team on his back. And, oh, God. Yeah. Oh, I do remember that one. I remember showing up at the rink, and everybody going, Forsberg's out, and Sackick's hurt. And I'm going, oh, my God. Well, the year that we had happen. the team, I was in the minors for the, most of the year. I mean, I remember Bobby Plager. They sent me the minors my third year, and Bobby Plager coached us down there. And so when we lost out, uh, in the NH, so I got called up at the end of the year, and of course, you know, we had that big brawl. I got suspended for ten games. I was out at the start of the series for the first four games, and we were down three to one in the series against Detroit, and we came back and won three mm-hmm. in a row and moved on to the next round. And that's when Minnesota's power play was some crazy thing, like at fifty six percent or forty six percent, like some crazy number, yeah. and they had just upset uh, Chicago. 
and then come in and beat us and then beat Edmonton. Like, they were on a roll. Like, their power play was ridiculous. And they went to the finals against Pittsburgh, who, by that by the way, that year we beat Pittsburgh twice. Mm. And, and Mario Lemieux was so sick of Rick Mahar hanging off of him. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but I never got called up towards the end of the year. So when I got sent down, you know, the, the Peoria was in the playoffs, I asked if I could go down and play. And Brian Setter was just pissed. It's like, you dumb little bastard, you finally figured out how to play here, and now you want to go back down to the minors? What's the matter with you? And I said, you can say that, what I was going to say next. You can say to anybody but a Sutter, they don't get it. I said, well, oh, I'd rather go down and play hockey or I could go home and farm. I don't want to do that. All the Sutters take the farm thing, okay, for sure. So he's mad at me, throwing his laundry bag at me. He tells me to get the hell out of his office. Dave Tomlinson's up next. He goes, did you ask him if you could go down? I go, I wouldn't ask. <laughs> he went in doesn't there. play well. No. He doesn't play he well. He ended up sending four of us to the minors. <laughs> wouldn't let Tuttle go for some reason. And we won the cup in the minors with Bobby. The, the stories that you've told me about, not only the team, but then the fun and games you guys had. And I realize there's an omerta, and, and as much as I would love to hear them while we're recording, I'm probably not going to hear them. And even if we're not recording, I'm probably still not going to hear some. I know, I know that. But what was it like to be in your 20s and be a member of the St. Louis Blues with that crew? Oh, God. <laughs> like, I asked Isring how I'm not his time in Oakland, and he goes, I'm lucky I got out of there because I don't think I would have made it out of there alive another year. And I'm kind of like, I feel like that might have been what it was like, like the, the 1990s Blues. Yeah, you know, what's funny about that group was it? We're really tight still, but it was just a different era. Everything was different. Once we went to the new building, it started to change. You know, it changed. But that place, because of the mystique of the old building, you know, the police were your best friends, which was needed. Uh, there were no cameras on your phones, no phones. So, you know... You went to practice. You went to lunch. Lunch turned into happy hour. <laughs> happy hour turned into dinner. And then everybody would kind of split off and do their thing. And you didn't want to ever, you know, you, there was nobody dragging anyone down. It was just like you were you were like a pack. And sometimes one of the guys cut off from the pack and did his thing, whether they were taking a girl out or, had family in town or whatever they were doing. And sometimes it was just, you know, the pack. But we were very comfortable in the city doing whatever we wanted to do to enjoy ourselves, but also respect the hard work that it took. So when we went to the game, we wanted the fans to know that we give a shit about their city and we give a shit about how much they paid for their ticket. Like, People say to me, oh, when you fought, you must, you know, and they thought I fought for entertainment. Never. I fought because I cared about my teammates and I cared about the team. And I fought to make an impression and, a, and a, you know, an impact on what people thought they could or couldn't do to my teammates or to us as a team. Mm-hmm. And so, but, I, but it, it, the resolve in it was people appreciated it and they understood it. That it wasn't just to go out and, oh, I, you know. I didn't feel like, you know, dancing on a podium for anybody. That wasn't what I was doing. But it it turned into something that was bigger than that. And as a group, I think the St. Louis Blues, as a group, as a whole, the entire city embraced that group because they knew how much we cared and how much emotion we played with. Yeah. I mean, we never missed a party. 
But we never missed a game where we come out and didn't give you effort. Yeah. People love that here. And I think that's when the game blew up in St. Louis. Yeah. I think that's when so many people, because the Blues were, even though they were only two. Well, sports, Brett Hall blew the game up. Yeah, I mean, that, there's no question about it. But he brought people to the, but then people are like, oh, these guys, I mean, these yeah. guys are guys I right. can relate to. And we can buy into right. this group of guys. And that means something. I had a guy the other day walk up to me. And Shanahan and I lived together for a couple of years. Yeah, famous three. home. Like, if the walls could well, talk. <laughs> well, we, uh, we, this guy come up and he goes, do you remember this deal where you guys came home from practice and the kids were playing out on the street and you, all of a sudden you guys played and he goes, Brandon Shanahan played for like four hours and he goes, and you had an abscess in your, and I'll never forget it because at four in the morning I had to go in and they had, they had put a filling in my, uh, they did a root canal and filled it right away because we were going on the road. And it got infected because I went home and played road hockey with a bunch of kids and ran around and yeah. got the thing all swollen up. My face was swollen up. My eyes swollen shut. Shanny drove me to the dentist at four in the morning and I made him, <laughs> I made him pull, I made him pull my tooth out. I said, pull it out. He's just, it's a good, strong tooth. I go, pull it out. And he pulled it out to this day. I don't have it. I go, I'm serious. Pull it out. I go, I don't care. I'm, I'm tired of this pain and I'm not sucking it up till these antibiotics work anymore. I've had it. Pull the tooth out. So the guy pulled the tooth out. And I got on. I was able to go on the plane with the team. Otherwise, I couldn't fly and I would have missed the game. But, and I said, oh, do I remember the floor hockey game? I go, yeah, my face was swollen up so bad because I got, I got hit by a stick. And we're playing road hockey with a bunch of kids, right? <laughs> so I've kept a picture because it, it, it uh, I'll show you. You still the, have this. No, no, no. I have a picture that's even better. So one night I got the same abscess and I was supposed to play in a fantasy camp. And this is in the alumni locker room. I had Perry Turnbull pull out one of my teeth with a pair of pliers. <laughs> same abscess, same deal, right? Just took and fired it down. So I, somebody took a picture of me in the back room with Perry pulling my teeth out. <laughs> so I said, all right, you know, here's the deal. So, I, so I've said, yeah, I remember it because it's happened to me twice. But we had a group of guys that would get out of the car and play road hockey with the kids. And then we would go to the bar and we'd play there. <laughs> and and we didn't matter who, you know, we'd be in a shuffleboard game with somebody or in a, a bocce ball game at Milo's. Milo's or yeah, we would, sure. Like, we didn't care. And we had our spots, you know. We'd go to, what was it? Uh, is it Filomino? Not Filomino's, but. Uh, what are you talking Fil- I'll, I'll get it. Filoni's. 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 Oh, we'd go to Filoni's and do That's the a whole. cougar den now. I know. Were you, were you picking off like 45-year-olds? We'd go in there to sing. Oh, really? Dude, we, karaoke night, right? We would, we would fire in there and go in there and thought we were all singers. I mean, he loved it. Obviously, the crowd would just, sure. people would be like, all right. And, you know, can you imagine now there'd oh be a video God, yes, all over absolutely. The, It would ruin it. It would ruin it. Ruin it. Oh, clearly so-and-so yeah. was out drinking last night and they lost the other night. So there's the problem. The best part them. about it was Garth Butcher could legitimately sing. Brett Hedekin could play the guitar and sing, right? Holly sucks, and he thinks he's good. <laughs> and so we would wait till he would get going, and I'd be like, "All right, boys, about time to go." And be like, "Where, where are we going?" And we just, I just started, and we're like, "Yeah, that's why it's time to go." You know, like. And Brett Hedekin, we had the greatest parties, right? It was the greatest parties, and Brett Hedekin was a shy guy, just ripped, you know, rip, play the guitar, uh-huh. you know. And we spend a night to joke with him all the time because when he first got called up, he had a room with Shan. He lived with Shanahan and I in our house. And about day four, there was that strike in 92. About day four, he locked himself in his room and put a note outside. I can't go with you guys today. I'm sorry. I have to try and catch up on my rest. So on, he was literally buried. 
And we came home from being out all night. There was an empty pizza box. He had ordered a pizza, ran down and got it, locked himself back in his room, and slid the pizza box outside. <laughs> but this guy was just huge, right? Uh-huh. We used to say to him, Hetty, don't talk and mess this up, okay? Just, <laughs> just, just wait till the girls get over here. We'll handle this. Don't speak. And when we get home, take your shirt off, grab your guitar, and sing. Don't talk. Shirt off, sing. You got it? Shirt off, sing. Don't talk in the bar. Stand here. Have your drink. Get to the house, shirt off, sing. That's the drill, okay? From there on, we got what's left. We just, and we used to tell him that all the time and joke with him. I, I told him the other, I told him, I told him and his wife now, um, you know, I said, uh, hey, hey, dude, uh, you know, your game has got a lot better, I can tell you that. <laughs> so that's yeah. what it was like off the ice, which I can't imagine what was what that was like for real. Because like, I know that where uh, the house is and what was going on. Yeah. I can't even imagine. It had to be the absolute best, especially with no phones like you mentioned. As we've been saying from the very beginning of the podcast, this little adventure that we have taken, the name of the game, when it gets down to it, for the business of the podcast, the sponsors. And if you're enjoying the Verizon Wireless Tim McKernan Show, please make sure you support the sponsors who are making it possible. Without them, you wouldn't hear conversations like this one with Kelly Chase. And James Carlton of the James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency has been with us from the very beginning, and I've gotten a chance to know James Carlton over the last eight months. And man, oh man, am I impressed. This guy and his name, for my money, is going to be synonymous with insurance in St. Louis for years to come. He gets it. He gets customer service. And he also gets the fact that, hey, there are a billion people out there selling insurance. And everybody needs it. So what's going to set his business apart? Well, then let me tell you. Let me tell you from my experience what sets it apart. First off, the knowledge of the industry is ridiculous. It's just so impressive how he can rattle off things that, you know, otherwise I would have never even thought of. That has been impressive. He might not think anything of it. I think a lot of it. Secondarily, it's the customer service. And I'm certain he wouldn't put it second. But that is so impressive that when you call there, you know you're not going to get voicemail. They pride themselves on the fact that when you call there at 314-961-4800, you're not going to be talking to a machine. You're not going to be leaving a voicemail during business hours. It's just not the way that it works. And that's important. It's kind of an old school thing, but it's the way many people appreciate business. 90% of homeowners in Missouri escrow their premium with their mortgage and have no idea what they're paying or what they're covered for. Call James today to protect your biggest asset. 314-961-4800. If you're going to be doing business with Ryan Kelly and buying a home, make sure that James Carlton's the person that's doing your insurance. How about that? Keep it all in the ecosystem. James Carlton, State Farm Insurance Agent, online at carltoninsurance.net. That's carltoninsurance.net. People do business with James because they like and they trust him. You can check out the reviews on Google and Facebook. It speaks volumes of how great of a business James Carlton runs. It's James Carlton, State Farm Insurance Agent at carltoninsurance.net or 314-961-4800. On the ice, being in the middle of these brawls and being a Saturday night at, yeah. at the arena, what's what's that like when you think about that now and you picture that? I mean, I have people going, oh, you're interviewing Chase. you got to ask him about, of course, the St. Patrick's Day. Right. you got to ask about it. But what was all of this stuff like and experiencing it? Because we see it. We still love looking at this stuff. But yeah. You experienced it. Well, it was funny because, like I said, I never, ever went out on the ice and said, oh, i got to entertain people. Like, I always thought about it as I was stopping people from bullying my teammates. That's how I pictured it, right? And sometimes guys would... You know, we'd start a game in Chicago and it would get like, 
it was like there was an puck out there. You're in this little rink, and everybody wants to get their hit in for the game. Say, Jocelyn Lemieux is running at Hully and running at uh, at Oates, and you're not getting out against Jocelyn. But if you slip yourself into the lineup and you got out against Ronick, you just ran at Ronick because you're like, okay, this is how we're going to play. So then, the, then now once those two lines have been crossed, now the fighters end up in a situation where you're going to – and you understood it, and you understood that you were trying to push guys out of a game. But – you know, when things got out of hand against Chicago, honestly felt like I wanted to be out there handling it. I really did. And I, I remember that the fight, the brawl we had in St. Louis with them where Kimby had been traded there and he wanted, he was trying to get in a fight with me. And I knew, like Kimball and I had fought before in that, and I knew I, did, I, knew, I didn't want to fight with Kimball. I, it was going to aggravate them so much that I didn't fight with Kimball but they had brought up a guy named Tony Horachuk, and Tony Horachuk had told me the entire game, you're going to get it. I'm going to give it to you. And I think that Daryl Sutter legitimately brought up Tony Horachuk to give me, to, to school me to say, okay, yeah, Kimball played here, and he might let off a hall and whoever because he knows them, but he'll come after Chase. But if that doesn't happen, I got this guy, and this guy's going to let up on no one. And I give it to him so bad. And I knew in the I had fought Greg Smith. I didn't want to fight Kimby, a because he was my friend. I, I really didn't want to make. I didn't have to make a point with Darren. It was, and I knew it was going to aggravate him more if I didn't, because he was the one that got traded. He was pissed off that he wasn't in St. Louis. I knew that I didn't need to fight him. I could fight guys that were, you know, there are other tough guys, and still make the same point, and maybe even make it better. So sure enough. Kimby goes crazy, gets thrown out of the game. Greg Smith, Smythe, who had just passed away, was a wonderful guy. He fought with me. He didn't do so well. And so now it's the big guy they've called up, this, you know, Tony Horchuk, who played in the Western League, and I knew was a tough guy and a great guy. And I'm fighting with him, and I'm telling you, I am teeing up and just crushing him with rights. And he's he leans in on me and get I'm against the penalty box. And he said, all right, I've had enough. Daryl sent me out here to do it. <laughs> he actually says this as you're teeing off on him. And I, think, <laughs> and I remember smiling to myself with my arm was right back here smiling to myself going, now this is to make a point. <laughs> and, and, you know, we had the brawl. And after the game, I just answered the questions real honestly. He said, oh, that's what happens with St. Louis or whatever. But I knew that was going to happen. Like I knew before the game. When I saw him in the lineup, I knew why he was there. Yeah. I knew I was getting under their skin because I was starting to win some fights in Chicago mm-hmm. consistently. Mm-hmm. And I knew that was bothering them. And mm-hmm. it was pissing Daryl off. And, you know, I'm sure in the summertime, Brian was probably egging him on a little bit yeah. because I was doing okay. And, you know, so it, it it started when I was younger, when I started in the game and the fights. The first time I fought Wayne Van Dorp, and he was screaming and yelling at me, and it kind of got the better of him. And I, I'm sure. You can pull up the quote or whatever, but I said, uh, they asked me what he was yelling at me on the penalty box at, and I said, I don't know. I couldn't understand him. I'm not fluent in cement. <laughs> and so the, the next time we play them, he, he's yelling at me in warm-up. Well, he gets healthy scratched. Keenan doesn't play him, so he's livid. And I'm waiting for Trent Yanni after the game. We were trying to hide around the corner, so you didn't want to be seen talking to the other team. It's not like it is now. Now they're in each other's rooms hugging and hickeys and the bullshit that goes on now. So I said, I said I'm standing around the corner. I'm waiting for Yanni. And all of a sudden, I'm leaning on my hands. All of a sudden, wham! This guy's got me by the throat. And it's Wayne Van Dorp. And he just punches me right in the face. 
And thankfully, Stu Grimson's coming around the corner, who's on his team, and jumps on him. And then the two little coyotes, Richie and Ronnie, are on top of him in the hallway in the Chicago oh Stadium. Oh, my God. So this is going to be a fight in the hallway. Uh-huh. This monster, Van Dorp, drills me. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is after the game. So it just kept going on and on with Chicago. It didn't matter if it was Grimson or if it was, you know, uh, uh, Peluso or or Van Dorp or Tony Horachuk or Craig Smythe, Bobby McGill, every Marchman. Every time I went into a game there, I was like, "All right, well, this is just this." I'm telling you, is just the. It's going to be the way it is, and it is what it is, and, uh, I, and I was okay with it. Did, did you ever like? I mean, what's the best one you had? The, the, the fight that you look back is there. Is there a fight where you go, "God, that's the one, that was the one that was my that was the best." Not really. You know, like, I mean, I've done well in fights, you know, and everyone says, well, like, here's the biggest bunch of bullshit that that a fighter will tell you. I wasn't trying to hurt him. You knock him out. I wasn't trying to hurt him. But what are you fighting him for? (laughs) Because there's time. Or people come to me and go, well, he was down. I know you wouldn't have hit him when you were down. I'm like, yes, I would (laughs) have. I mean, listen, honest to God, if you're not making a point, what are you doing it for? If, th- then you're doing it for entertainment. I wasn't trying to hurt him. Yeah. Yes, I was. Yeah. I wanted to make a point to him and his team. Don't do that. Don't act like that out here. Don't act like that out here when I'm out here. What was the best time? When, well, the best time was when I had Twister. Yeah. Because we, we understood our role together, and I always knew he had some. He knew that I would fight anybody. But it took a lot of the pressure off knowing that you had to handle a big guy and a middleweight, you know. But I don't know if there's one fight necessarily because... Well, what about that one? Well, well, I didn't think too much about that one either. You know, to be honest with you, Twister and I knew one another. I just felt like, you know, I felt like the if Twister stays in his, in his jersey, I win the fight. Because you can't handle him while he's naked. It's, he's too much of a beast. You know, I mean, I knocked him down at the start of the fight, and I mean, he's, as soon as you do that, you know, he's planning for game seven already. Yeah. You know, it's best of seven. Yeah, yeah. And he's swinging for it like yeah. that, you know, and he's such a tough bugger to handle. Yeah. But like I said, if he wouldn't have come out of his jersey, I felt like I would have won the fight, you know, but he's like, again, it doesn't, it, it didn't bother me at all with him. Yeah. I, I remember one that bothered me, and it was when Mark Crawford sent Francois LaRue out to fight me, uh, afternoon game against Colorado. Twister wasn't playing. And he sent me out, he sent him out on the ice, and he's a right defenseman. And he sent him all the way up to left wing and was yelling off the bench in front of their bench, was the faceoff, try him, try him. Now, I know coaches give a guy a shot and they have an expectation. I have never seen a coach send a guy out and then yell at the, I've never seen it anyway, yell at the other team, he'll go ahead and try him. And I was legitimately, I mean, if you look up Frankie LaRue, you're talking about a guy that was six foot seven, six, seven and a half, legitimate 245 man. Okay? And I'm like, oh my God, this is not going to be good. And when the fight ended, it was the last game he ever played in the NHL. He dislocated his shoulder in the fight when I threw him down and I punched him in the face six times. And I remember seeing Mark Crawford when he coached L.A. In, in a bar in O.B. Clark's, and I walked over and I said, you know what, I'm going to tell you something I'm never going to forget, and I told him it. He goes, wow, you got a good memory. I go, you shouldn't have done that, because I watched how you played, and you weren't tough enough to act like that. As a matter of fact, you were kind of a chicken shit when you played. <laughs> and that's something I'll never forget, because 
to me, it just seemed unethical for the way he did it. And the Mm -hmm. fact that if you listen to the video, you can hear him yelling at the start of the fight. Now that's a beating. That's a beating. Because the crowd mics picked it up because it's on ESPN and they got all the stuff down there. Mm -hmm. And it's real quiet at the end of the fight. <laughs> That's a good one there. <laughs> so it was one of those ones that resonated with me because of how it happened. That's a good one there. Now i got to go look these things up. That's yeah, what i got to do. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that things you feel like things, things kind of calmed down when you guys went into the new building, but that was also right around the time of the Mike Keenan era. That I would imagine is that uh, there's got to be a correspondence there, is there not? Well, I was gone for, uh, you know, for those years. I mean, he traded me after the lockout. Uh, oh, he didn't trade me. He put me on waivers. He told me he didn't have time to trade me, if you can imagine. <laughs> he didn't have time to trade Honest to God, he said that. I looked at him, you know. One of the best stories about it is is that uh, I give Ted, Ted Sater a lot of credit for this. He he actually said in the, you know, while I talked to the coaches, and they don't feel like we're trying to add toughness and, and any team guys, and we don't feel you're on, you know, part of the, you're, you're on your own program and all this stuff. You know, I, I got into my grandma's funeral at the start of the training camp, and I asked him, and of course he says, oh, we're all about family. Of course you should go to your grandmother's funeral. And then when I get back, I meet them in Colorado Springs. I missed the workouts. I never missed one day of the practice. I had already done my workouts in Colorado Springs, my testing, and he says, I don't need a guy that's just gone to some wedding or something. Oh, my God. Meantime, I was at my grandma's funeral who raised me when my dad passed away, and I'm like, pardon me, some wedding. And he goes, well, whatever it was, wedding. And I go, it was my grandmother's funeral who raised me. You know, what an asshole. So, so at that point, I know it's not going to be any girl tells me, he goes, well, I'm putting you on waivers. And, and I go, why? Like, you, haven't even, you haven't even seen me. And he goes through this whole thing and tells me that the coaches feel it's the right move. And I looked at Bob Barry and he didn't say anything. I looked at Terry, Teddy Sater. Teddy Sater says, Mike, that's not true. I didn't say any of those things. Kelly's a complete team guy and he would buy into this. I never said that. And Mike, I thought, was going to fight with Teddy. Yeah, I was about to say, how'd that play with Keenan? Well, he lasted one year with Keenan, and that was about it. But the truth is, is that, and Bob Barry never said anything bothered me about Bob that he didn't, but I understand he was trying to, he knew Mike was off the rails and he was trying to keep his job. But anyways, I, I brought it up to Keenan uh, two years ago at, at Kresge's uh, fantasy camp, or a year ago maybe. And I said, you know, I should have punched your lights out. Like, I, I don't know what I, why I didn't drill you the way you talked to me and what you did, the way you acted. And Mike Barnett was sitting there trying to be a mediator. And Mike goes, ah, you know, I, I made mistakes there, of course. I could do things different than you know, I would have. But I don't re- remember recall doing that. I go, oh, I can tell you you did it because I would never forget it. It's something that I would never forget. And that's the difference, Mike, is that you were running over people at that time and picking the wrong people to be on your team, on your side, when if you would have embraced the people a little bit, you'd have had way more success. I understand you always wanted to be me against them, but if you'd have brought a couple of them into your world, mm-hmm. you'd have had a lot of success in St. Louis. So you think that that's like a, that was his strategy? Yeah, that was his strategy? Absolutely. I'm going to make them all hate me and they'll unify. Think, think about this. The guy couldn't coach when the two-way contract went away. Mm. Yeah. When he couldn't threaten yeah. Richie yeah. Sutter and yeah. say, Ronnie, if you don't start playing well, I'm sending Richie to the minors. Yeah. What? Yeah. If yeah, I don't like play he's well, you're going to He's got hostages. Right. You know, like if you look at the transactions that happened, Jimmy Roberts was the best. He said he used to say, Mike's trying to save humanity. You say, what are you talking about? Well, he's going to have somebody, when the world ends, he's going to have somebody in the air. He thinks they'll live through it if they're in the air. So he's going to have somebody flying between here and Worcester at all times. There's going to be an, a blues player in the air at all times. He's going to save the franchise. Blues player in Worcester at all times. 
Oh, God. Uh, I also had this one, and you actually brought them up. People said you got to ask them about here comes Shovel Day. And it just so happens that you had, of course, a good part of your youth with Shovel Day on that thing. I imagine you guys have talked about it since you spent some lovely time in Saskatoon together on that one. When that happened, were you going, oh, my God? Or were you like, yeah, that's about right? Well, I thought Probert was coming to fight me. So when I give him a shot and drop my gloves, I was shocked that Jimmy Cummings came in flying in to fight him. I'm like, well, the big guy can handle himself, right? And in <laughs> comes Jimmy Cummings, and Jimmy drops the gloves, and, you know, we fight, and he gets cut open. So I think what happened was it was a little like a shark seeing blood. When Proby knows that Jimmy's fought because he, you know, he would have gladly fought me again, he sees that he's bleeding. Well, I mean, I don't know if it was Danny McCord or Pat DePuzo had a hold of me, the linesman, but I could see him coming at me. And he's kind of making a line like he's trying to get over to pretend he's picking up the equipment. I'm like, hey, cuz, you better let go of my arms because here comes the big man. And they're like, what? And I go, let go of my arms. Let go of my arms. And as soon as they let go of my arms, Proby was right here. And he's saying, I'm going to freaking. And I'm like, bam, I drill him because I know it's coming anyway. So, And, of course, you know, he goes crazy trying to get at me. And then Lowry and those poor guys are left with a Bobby Basson, tougher than barbed wire. He's out there. They're all going after Proby, right? Well, Proby, at that point, is fighting like three guys. They have Cummings in the penalty box already. Right. So we got an extra guy. So Chevy comes down, and that's when Cujo come out of the net, right? Yeah. And, of course, Chevy and I played together, and, and uh, you know, you hear the whole, here comes Chevrolet. So we have the brawl, and... Uh, I'm going off the ice, and if you look down at Chevrolet, he ended up coming out of the game, I think, in the next period. He stayed in for that period, but his eye was swollen completely shut. And if you see him in the highlights, he keeps going like this, like squeezing his eyes, trying to push the swelling out of his eyebrow. So he's leaning on the net down by there, and he's screaming at me, you moron, you started all this shit. He's going on and on and on. I looked over at him, and I go, I can see his eyes swollen closed. And I said, "Ah." Oh. You should be a you're an embarrassment to the Saskatoon Blade alumni. That's embarrassing. And he went crazy. So we so of course the guys were giving him a hard time. You know, we were the toughest team in junior hockey in Canada. Say, so see, we knew you weren't tough enough to be our goalie. We have fun with him with that. And Cujo, we said, Cujo say, I give it to the Western. I said, Cujo, the only reason you gave it to the kid from the West is because you played out West in Notre Dame. I said, the only reason you were tough enough to do that. So don't get over your skis. Stick the goal, goaltending. <laughs> I got to ask you two more questions, and then I'll let you go. You make the transition from player to broadcaster. And from my money, it's just an outstanding broadcast team. And when Kerber was in here, I said the same thing. I'm sure I've said it to you when we were just bullshitting on the phone. And it just works. And it's one of those things you can't control it. You know, either you have chemistry or you don't. Either guys can get along and play off each other. They don't. And now, how many years now have you been? 18. 18 years. And I love the broadcast, A, because you guys kind of give each other some shit, which is good entertainment. But you're also, it's so refreshing in a broadcast in 2018 or even 2008 for guys to the, do the proverbial call it how they see it. It's yeah. not easy to do, but you guys do it, including Kerber. You can do it. You played the play in the league, but you guys do it. And I love listening to that. It's a, it's a broadcast that if I'm in the car, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to listen to it because I know I'm going to be entertained and informed. Yeah, you know what's funny? Well, first of all, I'm going to just, I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. I'm as good as I am for whatever that's worth. Good, whether you like me or you don't like me. Whatever I am, 
is because of Chris Kerber. In my opinion, and I've worked with, I've worked with 10 other guys and done games. I started at ESPN doing some, I mean, I was always on the B team, ESPN. I'm, I'm doing Westwood one. I'm doing, I think I have the, I think I have the Florida Panthers announcer next week in Colorado doing a game. Uh, I work with Dave Gosher that's in Vegas now doing the TV. I worked with him last year in the, in the regular season doing Westwood one, uh, you know, games. I still do games for other networks, right? Chris Kerber's the best play-by-play guy I've ever worked with. Huge pipes, knowledge of the game. He could put the least experienced person that's ever done a game on the air with him and pull stuff out of him and make him sound good. Now, do I think we have a chemistry? Of course, because once you learn to understand a guy, you know, it works, it fits. I listened to my first ESPN broadcast. I would have fired me after the game. <laughs> I suck. Why did you? Were you stumbling over yourself? Oh, you just didn't I know was you were talking, talking when I shouldn't have been talking. I was, <laughs> you know, I was, I was trying to make comparisons with guys that probably needed to wait. You could tell I had, you know, <laughs> anger issues with some of them. Sort of <laughs> like, I, you know, I just stopped short of calling a guy soft or whatever it was. You know, like. You know, personal, yeah. where you can't do that. Right. And I, I get all that now. And I, and I, you know, but, you know, the honesty part was easy for me. How I framed it needed to be changed. And I think that Curbs has helped me a tremendous amount with that. But I also think that you have to refresh stuff. And I think, for me, that's probably coming. It probably needs to be refreshed. Um, I don't ever want to be a guy that broadcasts and becomes cynical, you know, I never have complained about how much money guys make. I could give a shit. When you're, when you're people, I listen to you guys' show. When, when your fans call in and bitch about somebody making so much money, just shut up. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Why are you mad? Like, this is the business part of it. that They should perform. They sh- listen, you want to question their emotion, their execution. You can, com- you can complain about all that stuff. You don't think he cares. You sh- you have the right to do that as a fan. You don't have the right to be to complain about how much the guy decided he wanted to make and got that contract. Why? No. Nobody comes to you and tells you you what you should get for your house when you sell it, right? That's the business part of it. Mm-hmm. You should keep your yard clean. You should respect the neighbors. Those are the right things to do. But what you sell your house for? None of your damn business. Yeah. No. Right? No. Like, to go and whine about how much a guy makes, you know? You can talk about management putting themselves in a strain over the cap because this guy's paid this amount of money. But to complain to the player and say, he's not doing what he should do for that amount of money. Hold on a second. Says who? You don't think the guy goes out to the plate and wants to hit the ball? You don't think the guy goes out on the ice and tries to score? You think because he made a certain amount of money, he doesn't want to try or he doesn't care or he doesn't... Because it's impossible to get to this level of play and not care. Right. It's impossible. Right. Okay? I've already given you the statistics. Yeah. So don't be such a moron. When you make that comment, you're being a moron. Okay? And we have plenty of morons in media right now. We have tons of them. Shit, we got a ton of them in this market. <laughs> All right? So think things through. Don't be the guy that the only time you've thought something through 
or you're giving a question or an answer about the locker room, don't be the guy that's giving you some uneducated opinion. And the only time he's been in the locker room is when the guys are in their underwear. He's never actually played a game. He's never actually thought through or had a conversation with that guy about, because you don't know if that guy's wife's going through problems. His, his family's going through problems. If his cousin wasn't one of those kids on the bus, you don't know why that's happening. You don't know what the hell's going on in his life that would make, make it affect where he's at. So to talk about how much a guy makes ridiculous, right? So I've always tried to stay away from becoming a guy that's become cynical and, but it also becomes a time, too, where I hear some of the older guys on the radio, and, and when they – you can't lose touch with the players. When you lose touch with the players, you're doing yourself a disservice. You have to be able to go down and sit with them in the training room and have a conversation. You have to be able to go and sit with them on the plane at some point and ask them a hard question and say, hey, I'm trying to go to bat for you. You know, tell me, you know, or, or, hey, how can I help with your charity? Or you have to be able to go sit and have a beer with them and them feeling, feeling comfortable that he's not going to run and tell Doug Armstrong that I had a beer with him. Yeah. Because lots of times you're a mediator. Yeah. Okay? When that changes for me, when I become a guy that I don't think that the players feel comfortable around, I won't do it. You know, and it's coming. Because... Garth Butcher told me this a long time ago when he could have played for about two or three years. He said, hey, man, everything I have in my life I owe to the game, okay? It's someone else's turn. Someone else's turn. In this, in this job that I have, I've been so grateful to have it. It's been such a blessing. It was the hardest thing I ever did in my life was to leave the game. I cried like you can't believe after the press conference. I thought, what am I doing? I had these three offers or four offers to play, one of them for two years in Philadelphia. What the hell am I doing? I'm a hockey player, but I've never done anything other than hockey since I was four years old. And here I am, 33, and I'm going, I'm not doing this anymore? It's, it's terrible, right? It turned out to be a blessing for me. But at some point, when someone sits in my chair, puts my headset on, I want them to have the same character. I want them to have the same integrity. I want them to have the same communal value. I want them to care about St. Louis. I want them to be honest, loyal to the fans, and yet protect the players. Because I think it's important for the team broadcasters to protect the players. Because not enough people do. And I know how damn hard it is to play. Yeah. Yeah. Along those lines, you were outspoken this season when, I guess there were a couple reports. Now, Jeremy Rutherford had a report regarding a division in the locker room and some issues that have been going on, really, that, that have been going on for a couple of years. And we asked you about it on the show, and you're like, you came up to JR and said, what took you so long? You loved that he did that. And then there was another report from someone, and I'm not looking to call the person out. Honestly, I don't know the person uh, who had a report about there was like a Tarasenko faction and a Petrangelo faction, and you're like, on Twitter, if I'm not mistaken, like, you know, who are you? And, and I've never seen you down here once. And what do you, how are you, you know, how are you positioning this to right. the public? How did you, what, what was the difference, for example, between what Rutherford was reporting and what the other. Rutherford was? said that I said what took you so long? No, no, no. You said when I asked you about what Rutherford said, you said you walked up to Rutherford and said what took you so long. That well, what, was, no, I think my comment, not, not about the article, 
was that was it was time to, for him to say something that's that made him saying. That's what I'm saying. I, I, you, yeah, I don't think there were, you know, the whole division thing in the in the locker room, to be honest with you, I didn't buy it. But what I think you do, and this sometimes is the fault of coaches and GMs, what they don't understand sometimes, how they view the leadership is not how the players do it all the time. Like, now, do they view it as simple as the C and the A and the sweaters? Is that other view? Well, I, I think they want guys to step up and take more initiative as a as a personality. But some guys just can't do it, and some guys they're not good at it, and some guys just have to let their play dictate it. Mm-hmm. But 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 let's be honest. Like, if we're being honest with everybody, the captain of the St. Louis Blues for the last what is it nine ten years has been Alex Steen. He's the most consistent guy in the locker room that has a sense of. That's not knocking David Backus or Alex Petrangelo. I think Alex Petrangelo has evolved to an unbelievable leader. And I and I happen to think the world of him. Okay? But, you know, if Brett Hall had the C on his jersey, I'd be the first to tell you that Garth Butcher was the captain. He knows when to take guys out for dinner. He you know, he buys a rookie a suit. He buys the trainers this. He walks over and tells guys. You know, get your head out of your ass. He walks over to guys and say, keep your head up. He, that's just the type of guy he was. And somebody will say to you, well, is that always leadership? Is that always what captains do? Brett scored in every big game. and never went to the rink once and said, gee, I wonder if Brett's going to show up to play. Not once in a big game ever, ever. Probably the most points per game in the playoffs, if you look it up, of anybody that ever played, that played over 50. I think he's got a point a game in the playoffs. I bet he's got 100 points in the playoffs. That's unreal, right? Do I think Brett would have been the best, was the best captain? No, I don't. But Brett knows that. So if we're being honest, the truth is you understand who the guys are that make your brand a certain way. What, what, is, what, what are the things that the, the, the teams come in and say about the St. Louis Blues? They're heavy. They are hard to play against at home. They play, you know, their specialty teams are unbelievable. They stick up for one another. They, so if I'm the guy deciding what our brand is, right, I pick the guys that are pulling everybody into the battle in that direction. Mm-hmm. I grab Kyle Brodzak and say, okay, you're a third-line player. You're a third, this guy, they're going to follow this guy because Kyle Brodziak does everything he can to win every freaking night. People can bitch about what Alex Steen makes. If you knew what he brought to the team and how many fires he puts out and how hard he plays, what he sacrifices to be, you would never question what that guy makes. You can't. Because what he does, I mean, you know, whether he's it's becoming a vegan because he feels like it's going to make him lighter. To, the things this guy sacrifices to having extra therapists to go to cryotherapy, to all the things that he thinks might give him a little edge at his age, riding in his bike program, that gives him the legs and the stability. This guy was completely out of gas burned by the end of the season. But it, but what he sacrifices means the world to the rest of the group. You have to have a unique understanding of that to understand who your leaders are. And I think when you take a guy out of the wolf pack that was a leader and you ask him to stand at the back of the line, hmm. you made a huge impact in the guys in the middle. Because now they think instead of the leadership, they don't have that same respect. And so you put other guys in that you hope evolve into this brand that we talked about, and they don't always pull in the same way. And that's when you get that diversity. 
And that's when you get the, the guys that were the alphas mm-hmm. saying, listen, get your head out of your ass. That's not what the St. Louis Blues are about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the conflict with the St. Louis Blues were. Is there were some guys that didn't realize this is what we're about. We're about, you know, we're about all these things. Hard, heavy, all these things. And some guys didn't buy in completely this year. Now, you can call. You can start off with the injuries, and you and I have talked about this on your show. We didn't address the secondary sto- scoring at the start of the year. We didn't know Robbie Fabry was going to be hurt, or Sanford was going to be hurt, or Burgley was going to be six months, and it wasn't going to come back with the same start. But if you look at Berglund's contract and what he makes, that's not a bad buy for a guy that's going to score you 20 goals, 25 goals. You know, Unfortunately, with the injury, and he didn't play enough games, he didn't get to 20. But it's close. Mm-hmm. I think there's so many more things about guys intangibles that you got to say, well, who's your leadership group and how do you want your team to perform and then decide who your leaders are going to be. That's me. Do they have the right leaders? We're going to see next year. Cause at that point, you know, they've all been called out. This is a learning curve for everybody, including army. Yeah. And he'll call them out. He's not afraid to do that. And, and he'll make hard decisions. And sometimes they're not with his heart. They're with his head. With his, with his business head. Sure. But it, there also has to be some kind of learning and intangible to know how important that locker room is. And when I told you we almost won a couple, I felt like we were going to win when we lost to San Jose in the same. I believed that. I believed you had the right characters. You had the right guys that were going to go to the front of the net every time and take a beating and block shots and play for one another and cared for one another. Was it perfect in the locker room? No, it wasn't. But it never is. Even the teams that win. But the guys that were there that were the leaders held the other guys accountable, and those guys were res- respected it. they got to get back to that. Do you anticipate major changes this yeah. offseason? You do? Yeah. 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 I do. I think that the St. Louis Blues will be very active at the, at the draft. I think that they'll go after big-time free agents, including Travers. I think they will, I believe that they will explore every option of guys of teams that aren't satisfied. And and two weeks from now, there's going to be eight more teams that aren't satisfied. So you have, um, you know, the teams that are out right now, the 15 teams that are out right now, and eight more coming, that Army's going to start calling. Right. And he's going to make some changes. Final question for you. Yeah. When we were talking in 2016, which is the year when the Blues... uh, were three wins uh, away from uh, getting the Cup Finals. I guess uh, two wins away from the Stanley Cup Finals. You, I when we were talking, I was like, "You are so happy," yeah. you know. And it, and it, but it wasn't just you. It was like all the guys you played with, and so many guys were either coming back to St. Louis for the games mm-hmm. against the Sharks, or they were just you guys were just talking. Yeah. And there was just a buzz, right? And there's such an amount of emotion attached to the alumni who want to see this franchise win a Stanley Cup. And I feel like you felt that was going to happen in 2016. And therefore, it became clear to me how important it was, not just to you, but of course to your your fellow former teammates. Listen, the only thing missing in my career, I guess in my life, is a cup. And I I don't get to win one as a player. So it would be the hardest thing about leaving the broadcast booth or being a you know, leaving the blues would be that I feel like I have a void. And it's amazing. You know, I've talked to guys about it. I've talked to players that have won it. And I've talked to guys that, that haven't, that are involved. And it's the one thing that, that I could, 
I could go away going, man, I feel like like I'm not going to be able to score a goal in it. I get that. But in some small way, being a part of it would fill a huge void that I have in, in my career and in my life. Sounds weird. Sounds stupid that, you know, you have all these opportunities in your life that you've turned down and you've turned them down because of that damn cup. But we really thought we were going to win then. And it's amazing how it brings guys together. I mean, you know, that Stanley Cup is like traveling with Elvis Presley. I've been on freaking unreal events with that thing and had to go around. I mean, we took it across Saskatchewan and just stopped in towns and just put it on the street and people were running into one another. Accidents. <laughs> I swear to God. It's like, it's like, you know, it's unbelievable. It's literally, it, you know, it's a showstopper. People see it and it's just, there's nothing like it. Nobody gathers a crowd like the cup. And so not to have my name on it, you know, I guess that it is what it is. I've always wanted to be in, in the hockey operations side rather than in the business side. And for whatever reasons, it's not worked out. And sometimes it's been me. It's hard to take a pay cut to get to another level, you know, um, but I want to be a part of one, and it, it would mean the world of the city. I know how much it would mean to the city. I've talked to Mike Shannon about it. He's like, those parades we have, that would be nothing if we ever won hockey. He said that it, would, it, would, it would be three times the size. It would be nothing like it in St. Louis. And he's right. And, and, you know, I've made it my home. I love the people here. I've been fortunate. I've been treated. For a guy that wasn't very good, I've been treated way better than I should have been. <laughs> And I, and I understand that. Like, I get how there's a mutual admiration for one another, me with the city, the city with me, because they know I care about it. Not to win the cup and not be a part of the Blues would be extremely tough for me to swallow. But for the city and for the organization, if I wasn't a part of it, I would be so happy for them because it's just tough. People support so damn much here, and yet they've just not had that chance. And, and uh, you know... I think it'd be it'd be awesome to watch what happened here and the evolution of the game here with with a cup to to you know and banner to hang in the rafters. Chaser, I appreciate it, man. And you're probably going to finish. We're going to play our uh, Tom Cochran song. Oh, that's right. Huh? Yeah. We're going to cue that. Up. Why wouldn't we? Why, I mean, I think, yeah, yeah. That's uh, what he just put that together. Like literally, just put that together. And put it together it. before we started. He, he, oh yeah, uh, Cochran put it out. Uh, he put two songs out. He put one out. Uh, he redid. His song "Big League," and then he wrote yeah, one specifically for the humble kids. Wow! Yeah. It's, when are you going back? When are you going back then? By the end of the month yeah. here of April, I'll I'll have uh, I've gone back to uh, Saskatchewan, and you know I, I just looked at my messages here. I got I got uh, by the look of it, I got seventeen text messages. Oh, eighteen text messages from from people with. Uh, we have a date. The date April is April twenty seventh. There it is. Now we're working on for sure the talent. Okay, so April twenty seventh we'll be in Saskatoon. And, will you be uh, able to get there for that? Paul Bryant. I know they've spoke to so many guys: uh, Chad Brownlee, Luke Bryant, uh, wow. uh, Terry Clark. Uh, you know, there's some local uh, groups there that are they're big in Saskatchewan. Coulter Wall, which is who's in St. Louis here recently. Um, you know, they'll speak to everybody, and I'll be back there for it with a bunch of hockey players. So we're going to get rolling on. Yeah trying to make sure we can help these families out in every way we can. It's an awesome thing, man. Well, yeah, I appreciate uh, the time. Hey, man, Big thanks time. for having me. great. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Right. Use your tears to flood the ice And your prayers to keep us warm This won't be our last game yet We're still humble, strong Hey, mom, dad 
Well, I made to show. You always told me I was. Don't you worry anymore. Got my teammates by my side. You don't have to cry. Just promise me one last thing you need. Light on and put my stick by the door. So there it is, Kelly Chase here on the Verizon Wireless, Tim McKernan Show, and an absolute pleasure. That was one of those interviews where we could have gone on for four or five hours. It's kind of like the Claiborne interview. Uh, I know a lot of people like the Claiborne interview, uh, and that that one reminded me of that. Now, the Claiborne interview I recorded when I was down at spring training, and uh, and it was just Mike and me sitting in my living room with the recording device and, and doing it, and so I, I don't even know if we were paying attention to how long we were going until then I go, oh my God, we just went like an hour and 45 minutes with chase. I'm kind of like, okay, I've already kept him an hour and a half, but I feel like every time I bring something up, it leads to a whole new story. As a matter of fact, I don't even know where the sea monster is going to cut the conversation because I like cut it two different times and then we would keep, we would keep going, but I loved it and I was entranced and I feel like, uh, there was still so much more we could have gotten into, but how about some of the stories? Uh, how about some of the insight? And then, you know, there's plenty of things that he experienced that he just, can't say, but some of the behind the scenes of living with Brendan Shanahan uh, and the fun and games when like Hedekin moved in with them. Of course, the brawls uh, getting cut, knowing Shovel Day, then seeing Shovel Day out there during the famous Here Comes Shovel Day brawl and Shovel Day giving him hell for starting the fight uh, through all of the near trades like with Dominic Hoshik to the trades, whereas he loves Sean Hill, great guy at a barbecue, as he said. But what were the Blues doing picking up Sean Hill? Just that kind of candor, classic stuff. And, of course, the way Mike Keenan let him go uh, brings back the magical memories of that fun time for Blues fans. And I knew Chase would bring us uh, some entertaining commentary on that. So just loved the conversation. Plus, regarding the 2017-2018 Blues, uh, you got his perspective on the leadership in the room, which certainly became a topic over the course of the season and his opinion that you're going to see this team uh, change quite a bit over the next few months before the next season. And the thing that I think stands out to me because and I don't know if you can tell it when you're listening, um, but he was crying at the start when talking about uh, Humboldt. And um, so that's not the way that you would normally start an interview, but uh, that's how emotional he uh, was and still is about the topic. Uh, and understandably so. It's what he was working on, actually, when I walked in, is lining up that concert he was speaking about uh, and all the entertainers. Um, and the other thing is this. Because I know he's emotional, and if you've seen Ice Guardians, you saw the way uh, he was emotional, and because he was emotional about Humboldt, when talking about the Stanley Cup and the St. Louis Blues, as much as I want to see that happen, just because as a St. Louisan, I want to see it happen. And then for the fans who are so passionate and loyal to the organization, despite the many um, historic and horrifying memories of postseasons come and gone. Um, I, like I said to Chase, in 2016, when that team got to the Western Conference Final for the first time in 15 years... They really believed, I'm not talking about the team, maybe they did, and I think they did, reading Petrangelo's uh, column on the Players' Tribune, that that was the team. But I'm talking about the alumni. 
and like how the, all the alumni came back to watch those games because they want to see it so badly. And so if and when that happens, I really hope Kelly Chase is somehow involved because that's who I'm going to think of perhaps more than anybody else is Kelly Chase. And to hear him talk about the void that it would be for him. Now, he knows his name's not going to be on it, at least unless all of a sudden he becomes a coach. But for the the fact that the team would win it and he wouldn't be there, if that would happen, um, you know, that's something he's kind of playing out in his mind. You, you heard there at the end. And I just want him to be there. I mean, I don't, I just, when I think of the St. Louis Blues, I think of Kelly Chase. Um, it's like, it's kind of, he's kind of representative of the fans. You talked about that real relationship between him and the fans, you know, for being, as he described it, not by any means the greatest player, but the fans loving him. Um, I just feel like that's, that's the fitting moment. It has to happen at the Scott Trade Center and Kelly Chase has to be there when it happens. And I kind of knew going into the interview, that's where I wanted to finish it. Similar strategy, I suppose, to the Chris Kerber thing. Um, but, you know, of course, unlike Kerber and unlike me as a broadcaster, we never played it. And he not only played it, but he has lived it his entire life going back to Saskatchewan and the Humboldt Broncos days. So that's that's what I th- that's what I take away from it, I think, the most. is like, man, you know, I always, of course, want the Blues in there and I want them to win the Cup. But now I really, really want him to win the Cup, and I really, really want Kelly Chase to be there when it happens. Always enjoy your feedback. You help the cause by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you may podcast, preferably five stars if you see fit, and a positive review. It helps the cause. It really does. Uh, and I always welcome your feedback as well at tmckernan at insidestl.com. Love to interact with people on social media as well. At tmckernan is my Twitter handle, and then... Uh, the Tim McKernan Show on Facebook, follow the show. And uh, the TMA fan page on Facebook is another place where we interact. I love interacting with the listeners, and I'm so grateful that so many people have started to listening to this thing that now we have Verizon Wireless as our title sponsor. So welcome aboard to Verizon Wireless. If you're not on board with Verizon, I really don't know why you wouldn't be. The network is second to none. It is the absolute best. And then from that standpoint, I can tell you I have been a lifelong customer of Verizon Wireless. Our new sponsor on the Tim McKernan Show, Verizon Wireless. They want you to keep up with your favorite team on a new Verizon smartphone. And right now, when you switch to Verizon Unlimited, you can get up to 50% off the best smartphones like the Samsung Galaxy S9, the Google Pixel 2, or the iPhone X with eligible trade-in. So switch to Verizon Unlimited, America's best unlimited plan on the most awarded network and never miss a game. Whether you're at work, the gym, or in rival territory, Verizon Unlimited lets you stream every nail-biting, heart-pumping, unbelievable moment this season. Stop by your local Verizon store to get up to 50% off the best smartphones with eligible trade-in. Score big this season with the best unlimited plan and the best network, but you better hurry. Shop Verizon today. Up to $999.99 device payment purchase required, less up to $499.99 trading credit Applied to account over 24 months. Credit ends when balance paid or line terminated or transferred. 0% APR. Traded must be in good working condition and cosmetic condition. Verizon Wireless, the new sponsor of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network. Thank you to Kelly Chase for his time. Thank you to John Seymour and Nick Yale for their work in producing this fine broadcast. And thank you to all of our sponsors and you, the listeners, for tuning in 
and supporting this show as we enter into our ninth month of podcasting here on the Inside STL Podcast Network with the Verizon Wireless Tim McKernan Show, live on podcast from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios.